6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Colossians, chapter 4. Paul is, has a dream calling him to Europe, going across. There's a man that has come over. He goes over there. He's over there very shortly, and the they become we in the Greek. And people believe that's, that's where Luke joins Paul and, and stays with him for his career. And Demas greet you. Now, that's pathetic to compare verse 14 with 2 Timothy 4, because when Paul first mentioned Demas, he called him a fellow worker. Here, he simply says, and Demas. This may indicate that Paul didn't, wasn't really sure about him at this time. Demas and Luke seem to have been intimately associated as they are bound together here and also in the Philemon letter. However, in Paul's second imprisonment, we learn that the love of the world had been too much for Demas. So you can almost, in those three instances, trace his, his decay, if you will. Salute the brethren that are in Laodicea, and Nymphus, and the church which is in his house. Nymphus. The Apostle's salutation here is a threefold one, to the brethren that are in Laodicea, that is, in effect, to the whole community of that city, to Nymphus, whoever he is, and we'll come back to that, and to the church that's in his house. There's three different references here. Now, Nymphus could be a person, both of Christian character and generous feeling, of some amount of wealth, because his, the church is in his house, and that's non-trivial, because it's a large group. Nothing more is known regarding him, and this is the only passage in which he's made, but there's more to it than that. Whether it's Nymphus or Nympha depends on which manuscript you're looking at. And if it's a Nympha, then it's a Christian lady that we're dealing with here, a person of outstanding worth and importance in the Church of Laodicea, obviously, for he or she had granted the use of his dwelling house for the ordinary weekly meetings of the church. So someone of apparent substance here. But several manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus and, other, and the uh, Ephraim uh, uh, Receptus manuscripts read, quote, which is in their house. The Vaticanus manuscript has her house, making Nymphus a woman. So there's scholastic debate on that, for whatever that may lead to. And indeed, so near were they that Paul directs that the epistle to the Colossians be read also in Laodicea. They're an exchange. And that, that's practically dynamic, but it's also another indication that the Holy Spirit is regarding those two as crisscrossed, as together. So what's said about Laodicea may, in effect, seems to be valid for uh, the Colossians also. And so, this fact that the church met there also indicates that Nymphus was a person of some means. His small house could not accommodate the Christian men and women on every day of the week for the purpose of Christian fellowship. And the church, it's interesting to realize that everything you see in the book of Acts occurred in homes. That's something to really understand. That's where it all started. That's where it's going to end. That's where I've seen, in the 50 years, I've been aggressively, more than 50 years, uh, a Christian studying. The place I've seen people grow is in homes, small groups. Groups small enough where people can ask questions without embarrassment, 
and yet enough to hold each other accountable to some degree, that's where people grow. Not by listening to a 40-minute sermon every Sunday morning. Not that you should abandon that, don't misunderstand me. But you need more than that. Or you'll starve spiritually. Need, I encourage you to find a small group that meets during the week. Not just meets during the week, to study the Bible during the week. And you can see the whole home church kind of idea all through the Scriptures. It wasn't until the 3rd century that separate buildings were used when it became a state religion. And the pastors were on the state payroll. Different environment. That also led to some strange doctrinal twists too, as you can probably predict. But even today, it's my opinion, my perception, that people grow in small study groups during the week. And uh, not surprised. That's one reason we have the Institute. The best way is to be face-to-face in a small group that meets face-to-face, but there are some alternatives, and we'll talk a little bit about that after I finish the letter here. Paul says, And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And some presume that that may actually be the epistle to what we call the epistle of the Ephesians which does not have that in the title. It does in some manuscripts, but it's not in others. So that's a speculation. The, all the apostolic letters were circulated. And by the way, let me remind you, Peter calls them Scripture. So you, you, you're not crawling out on a limb regarding it as sacred. They were so deemed by the apostles themselves, the eyewitnesses. And so anyway, these letters were circulated by obviously manually copying. That's why they're called manuscripts. They were handwritten copies. There's a fascinating connection between Laodicea as the end-time church and the Epistle of Colossians is the antidote to the problems. The Colossian letter is the antidote to the problems in Laodicea and, and so on. There are 34 words that are unique to Colossians. And, and, and common to the Laodicea thing. In the beginning of the creation of God is a strange construction that occurs in Laodicea, letter, in Laodicea letter and here. I will give to him to sit down with me in my throne. These are uh, uh, expressions that are common to both. And so some suspect that the letter from Laodicea may have been our epistle of Ephesians, a circular letter to the other churches in the Roman proconsular Asia, reaching Colossae from Laodicea. But that's again a uh, subject of scholastic discussion. And say to Archippus that, uh, Archippus, the, uh, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. Interesting. He's also mentioned in the Philemon letter, by the way, possibly his son and the pastor of the church that met in his home. But anyways, apparently he was ministering at Colossae, but with a tendency not uncommon today, he was settled down comfortably and taking things easily. That's the hint here. That he should take heed to the ministry which you received, that thou fulfill it. And uh, so, propness, energy, sense of urgency is important in our spiritual work as well as everywhere else. Your work ethic matters. Okay. So how about us? Are we comfortable? Are we kicked back and enjoying a respite? Or are we, do we have our sleeves rolled up and at it? One day... Each one of us are going to have to give our boss, the big boss, an accounting. The salutation by the hand of me, Paul, remember my bonds, grace be with you, amen. Now, you can almost, as you listen to this letter, you can almost hear the clank of the chains about him. He is a prisoner. But Paul signed this. 
It's very typical to have an amanuensis, a secretary, to do the writing, especially for Paul, for reasons I'll get to in a minute. But what's interesting, he personally signs this, and he also puts his trademark on it. One of the things that Paul regarded as his unique, almost secret mark, he always finished his letters with grace be with you. It may come as a surprise, there is no other epistle writer of the New Testament that did that. The word grace appears only once elsewhere. It happens to be by Peter, but in a different context. That's quite a surprise. And in the Thessalonian letter, he uses that as proof it's from him because there's a forgery being circulated that's, current, that's, current, you know, that's a, causing all the trouble that led to the second. I often call it first and third Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians was a, tra- a, fa- a forgery being circulated. That the third letter, as I call it, we call it Second Thessalonians, was a response to that forgery. And Paul makes it clear by putting that and signing it personally that they know it's from him. So understand that. And just as a small point, by the way, the reason it becomes a big issue, how does the epistle to Hebrews end with the, with the grace salutation? So, okay. All of Paul's and only Paul's, uh, 13 signed and Hebrews, close with grace at the end. Written from Rome to Colossians by Tychicus and Onesimus. They were his manuenses. There is hint in Galatians 4 and 2 Corinthians 12 that Paul suffered from an eye problem that may have impaired his seeing. Some people attribute that maybe to the experience on the Damascus Road, but that's strictly conjecture. But he apparently had an eye problem that not only partially impaired his sight, but also was apparently cosmetically um, unattractive because he makes reference to the Galatians in thanking them. They were so gracious as you would have even blocked your eyes out for me. So he, there's that hint that that's somehow operative here. Okay, you and I are complete in Christ. We should beware of any teaching that claims to give us something more than we already have in Jesus Christ. You have what you need to add to it is probably blasphemy. All of God's fullness is in Him, and He has perfectly equipped us for the life He wants us to live. One of the great adventures in life is to discover the unique things that God has given you, because that's a clue as to what you were called to be called to do. There's nothing more exciting than to discover what it is God saved you for. I'll often ask audience, how many of you are saved? And all the hands go up. Great. What have you done with it? What has he called you to? Why did he save you? There's a reason. A specific, not only a generic reason, a specific reason. You want to discover what that is. We don't live by addition. We live by appropriation. May the Lord help us to live as those who are indeed complete in Christ. There is a prophetic profile that we opened with I want to remind you of. We have the seven letters of seven churches, and they are the, they seem to represent in the order they are the apostolic church. The, Ephesus was that description. Smyrna, that's a synonym for a myrrh, which is an embalming ointment. That's the persecuted church. Pergamus, pergamy is a false marriage, a perverted marriage. Bigamy is marriage too, mon- monogamy is one. Pergamus is an unhappy, unfortunate marriage when the church marries the world. Thyatira was a synonym for Semiramis. It was the medieval church with idolatry and what have you. Sardis is the denominational church. Philadelphia, the missionary church. And Laodicea turns out to be the apostate church. 
And that's what all of us have been bemoaning in the breaks and stuff. We talk about the pathetic state of the church in America and apparently has its problems in Britain here too. And uh, so we notice that the first three have the promises to the overcomer as a PS outside the body of the letter. The last four have the promise to the overcomer in the body. There's a structurally structural difference between the first three and the last four, which alerts us to the fact that there's some distinctives here. And we also discover that the last four are unique in that they have explicit references to the second coming of Christ in power. And so, that, in fact, one of them, Thyatira, has an explicit promise that if they don't change, if they don't repent, they're, not, they're going to be cast into the tribulation. Well, if that's the case, that means if they do repent, they won't be. It also means the others won't be, in effect. You get the implication there. Philadelphia, in contrast to that, is promised not only will it not go into the tribulation, it will be pulled out from the time of the tribulation. Wow. That's why all of us, of course, identify with the Philadelphian church. And Joe Foch, the pastor of the Church of Philadelphia, likes to applaud that. And they do happen to have one of the most outstanding pastors in the system, too, by the way. And as far as some of these others, that's problematical. Now, of course, we've been focusing on Laodicea for the obvious reasons. But it's interesting, of the seven churches, Paul also wrote seven churches. He wrote ten addressees, three of those were to pastors, and two are duplicates. So he had seven churches. And it turns out when you lay out Paul's letters, they match in theme and focus with these same seven, Colossians being matched with Laodicea. But that's a fascinating study I encourage you to get into. And so that's where we've been. There is a, 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 an epistemological cycle I'd like to acquaint you with. You probably know that from some of my studies that I believe your hermeneutics, your theory of interpretation, will determine your eschatology, okay? Because it turns out that the more strict you are, the higher view you have of the text, the more you'll take it literally and the more that drives you to a pre-trib, premillennial perception. People who are more comfortable, they're not uncomfortable allegorizing and treating it softly with what would be called a soft hermeneutic, tend to be on the left side of that little chart, amillennial, post-tribulational, what have you. In other words, your theory of the text will drive your perception of end-time perceptions. Well, what's interesting, as you grow in eschatology, that will impact your conception of the church, the mystical church, not the organization, the, 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 the body of Christ. Your eschatology, as you get sharper in that, more focused in that, you'll understand more how the church is not Israel. They have different origins and different destinies. And so this little profile we just went through tends to see, once you understand the eschatology of Revelation 2 and 3, suddenly you have a whole different perception of how to value map, if you will, on a sevenfold basis, the churches. What's interesting is your ecclesiology will influence your theory of interpretation. You see, if, if you're in a church that uses paraphrased Bibles, you know, you'll quickly outgrow those. And I kid you know, my friend here about the NIV, the, the New King James, because there's nothing really wrong with the New King James. I kid him about it, of course, because you have to always kid Ron, you know. But if you were in the NIV, the nearly inspired version, 
you would quickly discover, you, by growing, you'd outgrow that. You'd, you'd discover, you'd get more and more uncomfortable with the softness of it. So your ecclesiology will determine your hermeneutics and, the, 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 and your attitudes about the various manuscripts. But if the cycle is correct, and I'm drawn to suspect it is, in any case, you always put Christ right in the middle of it. That's really, obviously, what it's all about. So your challenge, I always like to close a presentation. I'm going to put something on the screen, which if you accept what I'm going to, I'm putting it on sincerely, but if you accept what I put on, you flunk the course. I'm going to put something on the screen that I hope you will challenge. It's a preposterous concept. And that's that you and I are being plunged into a period of time about which the Bible says more than it does about any other time in history, including the time that Jesus walked the shores of Galilee or climbed the mountains of Judea. That's a preposterous statement that you and I are moving into a period of history about which the Bible says more than it does the gospel period. You've got to be kidding. No, I'm not. I'm quite serious. Doesn't mean I'm right, but I'm quite serious about it. You've got to challenge that. If you accept it, you flunk. I want you to challenge that. But to challenge that, you've got to do two things. First of all, you've got to find out what the Bible says, not what Chuck Missler or XYZ on channel 27 says, whatever. You need to find out. It's too important to delegate to anyone else. Find out yourself what the Bible really says. You can't delegate that to others. Now, we have a unique environment today. The Word of God is more available than we can even grasp. I carry a phone that has six Bibles in it. I can search it in Greek or Hebrew if I choose to. I have a laptop that has, my laptop has more volumes in it than populate most seminary libraries. What's even more important, it's word searchable. If you gave me a set of the Antonicene Fathers, some 30 volumes that all of them, it'd be very gracious of you, they're expensive, but do I have time to read those? Not in a lifetime. I don't need to. They're on my laptop and I can word search them. If I want to find out what, you know, um, Irenaeus wrote to Paul, or to John about, about love, it'll find that for me. It takes several seconds. And so on. You follow what I'm saying? The tools we have, and by the way, uh, you can search what you, when you have your Bible and you want to find out what the Greek or Hebrew says, you can find out without knowing Hebrew or Greek. You put your little cursor on the word, up will pop a little thing which will tell you in the, the, the underlying Greek or Hebrew, New Testament, Old Testament, and what it means. It'll even diagram the sentence for you if you want. And it's free, by the way. Free. And um, there are many packages that are fantastic. Some of them are several hundred dollars. But there are many that are free. One of the best ones is eSword, and it's a giveaway. And that's what most of our staff uses, because not because they don't have the others for free, because they, we get them free for endorsements and that's over. It, uh, they do it because they prefer it. Esword's a terrific tool. And, uh, but the point is, uh, and also on the internet, there's the Blue Letter Bible. It's astonishing. And it's all free. No charge, no subscription. Just use it. And you can click on any verse of the Bible, and it'll pull up 50 different commentators, what they said about that verse. And you got maps and artwork and dictionary. All that stuff is there with it, and it's free. Astonishing. It's blue letter because everything on the, on the internet's hypertext is blue letters. And so they call it the blue letter Bible because the Bible is, is its own hypertext. And it's a terrific. We helped get that started with uh, Rabinovich and uh, Jim Milligan uh, years ago, but they've spun off and doing their thing and doing a great job, and we link to it, and, and I encourage you to find out about it. But we have a unique environment. 
We have these advanced information appliances, and we have the internet resources. And of course, one of the things I want to introduce you to, one that you need to know about before we're all through here, that's probably the most unique on the internet, and we'll talk about that in a minute. I also want to under, this, find out what the Bible says thing. I encourage you to do that in a small group. And if you can't find one, start one. It's easy. We'll help you. You don't have to be a teacher to lead a small group. Invite a few people over for a cup of coffee, pop a DVD in the player, let it play, and then talk about it. Well, hey, what do you think about it? They get a discussion. And they will beg to, let's do it again next Wednesday or whatever. And you've got a group. All you have to do is make sure one person doesn't dominate. Make sure everybody, you know, just, just guide it as a friend. You don't have to be a teacher and so forth. So check it out. And you can get university credit while you're doing all that, by the way. But the, other, the second part of my challenge isn't biblical. It's find out what's going on. You won't on the news. The BBC won't tell you. CNN won't tell you. Make the list. They're prostitutes. It's astonishing. I don't know the BBC world so much because I'm mostly in the U.S. But 2008 was a fabulous laboratory study of how the corrupt our media are. They knowingly published information they know is not true in order to achieve a result. There's the, perp the role of a free press in a democracy is to inform the electorate. Our free press went out of their way to make sure the electorate didn't find out the truth of the candidates. Astonishing. And you stand back and watch that charade and you realize they take pride in shaping opinion rather than informing the public. You need to understand that. If you don't understand that, now the good news is there's an end run on them. There's the alternative press. There's talk radio. And uh, most of all, there's the internet. Just because on the internet doesn't make it reliable. But boy, there is reliable stuff on the internet. World at Daily and a handful of others. And they, 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 they live by their credibility, not by an agenda. But find out what's going on. Pilate cynically said, what is truth? Well, that's a question we need to have answers to. We live in the age of deceit. It's a very organized, well-funded, aggressive agenda out there. Okay. So my question before we close here is, what's your action plan? It's been a wonderful time. We've had a couple of days here, pretty intense, a lot of stuff, and, and you can double back on that with the materials as they get edited and published. But um, if you've just spent a weekend and enjoyed a lot of palaver, you've wasted your weekend. Hopefully, this should have motivated you to take some action Every one of us in this room needs to raise the bar, me included, needs to raise the bar on a spiritual walk. So that 12 months from now, we've had 12, a year's worth of experience, not one month of experience repeated 12 times. In other words, we should be growing. We ought to be able a year from now to meet and be able, in, at least in our own minds, to identify how we've grown within that 12-month interval, presumably. So what's your action plan? What is God calling you to do? So I, this raise the bar thing doesn't just happen. It requires an assertive, deliberate commitment on your part for whatever. Now, I'm not presumptuous enough to guess what that might be, but I can tell you what it will include. If you're going to raise the bar on your spiritual walk, it's going to include, among other things, a systematic study of the Word of God. Well, I read it every day. That's devotional reading. I take that for granted. No, 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 no. I'm talking about a systematic intensive commitment to really learn your Bible. And that, you don't do that in a year. You do that in a lifetime. But you do it, one, you eat the elephant one bite at a time. 
So learn your Bible. Join or start a small group. There's plenty of them around. Find one. If not, start one, as I said. But respond to his calling now. You know that Satan loves tomorrow? Tomorrow is when I start my diet. Satan is not worried about what you're going to do tomorrow. I keep forgetting when I'm in Newport Beach, there's a, there's a famous crab restaurant there that uh, Ron and I know well, um, but it has a sign. I want to get a picture of that so I can use it in my PowerPoint. It says, free crab tomorrow. <laughs> and it's a tourist gag, because tomorrow, of course, never comes, see? And it's famous for that. And I, I, I just make a great closing thing here. No, Satan hates today. Tomorrow is when fools repent, right? Tomorrow never comes. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for allowing us to be together. We thank you, Father, that we know that in your kingdom there are no accidents, that we're all here by your divine appointment. And we would pray, Father, that your purpose will be accomplished in each of our lives. Help each of us to discover very specifically what it is that you would have of us in the days ahead. Father, we would just ask that you would indeed be clear. Let us really understand what you would have us undertake for the turbulent days that are coming. Help us, Father, that we might have a renewed appetite for your word and that we might be more effective as stewards of the opportunities that will unfold ahead of us. We ask this, Father, that we might be more pleasing in your sight, that we indeed would grow in grace and in the knowledge of our coming King as we commit ourselves without reservation into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, in whose name we do pray. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Colossians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, when we begin a new series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.